Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hello, you are very welcome to The Tonight Show. A glimmer of hope in Ukraine as the two sides meet to talk and Russia says it is pulling back from around Kyiv. It comes as Ireland expels four Russian diplomats. A new scheme announced for many of us on how we are going to get our pension and a big shake-up in the leaving cert we hear from Minister of Education Norma Foley. Get in touch on Twitter with your comments and your questions. It's hashtag tonight, VMTV. We begin tonight with a rare sign of progress in peace negotiations. Russia says it will scale down its military presence around the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv. That claim came at the latest round of peace talks in Turkey. Among those in attendance, Russian oligarch Roman Abramovich, who was allegedly poisoned at another set of talks earlier in the month. Well, let's go live now to Riga in Latvia and to correspondent Oli Barrett. Oli, there is a sense of optimism this evening. I suppose people are wondering what potentially um, is on the table and can Russia be trusted? I think it's fair to say that in this round of negotiations, we've seen more progress than we've seen in any of the previous attempts to hold talks between the Russians and the Ukrainians. That uh, offer from Russia, if we can call it that, of scaling back military operations around Kiev is something that Russia says it's doing to give room for negotiations to move towards some kind of uh, all-encompassing peace agreement. We are not there yet. We are not at a point where a ceasefire has been agreed even, for example. The Ukrainians, though, for their part, have come up with the most detailed proposals we've had yet in these uh, negotiations on issues like the thorny uh, problem about Crimea that was annexed in 2014, how to deal with that. Uh, Ukraine saying it would be prepared to be effectively a neutral country as long as it can get security guarantees from parts of the international community. So there are signs of progress here from both sides, but great skepticism as well from uh, large parts of the international community. The leaders of the US, UK, France, Germany and Italy held a call after the talks had wrapped up in Istanbul. They all agreed that it would be Russia's actions, not words, that they would be paying attention to uh, going forward. Boris Johnson, after that call, according to Downing Street, um, described Vladimir Putin is still twisting the knife in the open wound of Ukraine to try and force the country and its allies to capitulate. We've also had a late night address in Ukraine from President Zelensky. He's talked about positive 
signs from the negotiations, but he says that they do not drown out the explosions of Russian shells. He says the fighting very much continues, and he wants to see concrete progress rather than words said in negotiating rooms. All right, still a long way to go then, but Oli Ibarra, thank you for that update. Well, now to the deteriorating diplomatic situation between Ireland and Russia. Earlier this afternoon, Ireland expelled four members of staff from the Russian embassy. It follows security advice given to the Taoiseach, who spoke to the Doyle a little earlier. I don't want to uh, divulge in terms of security briefing we would have received in respect of these individuals, um, but it, in my view it's the correct decision, the right decision uh, in terms of our own national security, but also uh, in terms of, of sending a very clear message also uh, in terms of the abhorrence that we have uh, in, in, in respect of the war on, on, on Ukraine. Well, the Russian embassy here says Ireland's claims are groundless. Richard Chambers is live in London with more. Richard, this was part of a wider European response today. What else can you tell us? It certainly was, Kira. The Netherlands and Belgium expelling several Russian diplomats too, as well as the Czech Republic expelling one uh, diplomat from the Russian embassy in Prague. But this was very much well flagged. The government has been saying uh, for quite some time that some uh, Russian uh, staff at the embassy in Dublin would uh, could be uh, pushed out, expelled from the country. Uh, there has long been concerns at a defence forces level about the use of the Russian embassy uh, for espionage activities. So four uh, diplomats expelled from the Russian embassy in Dublin by the government today. Uh, as you said, the Russian uh, embassy, the Russian ambassador for his part saying this was arbitrary, it was groundless, the expulsion uh, of embassy staff uh, uh, belonging to the Russian Federation. They are likely to respond in kind, but it is worth saying that the Russian embassy in Dublin, uh, it is one of the largest uh, diplomatic contingents of any country, the third largest behind uh, the United States and Saudi Arabia. So a uh, well flagged, something which was likely to come for quite some time, but it does come uh, alongside some expulsions from other European countries. And Richard, I see you're standing there at Stamford Bridge. We were talking about Roman Abramovich and uh, the role that he's playing in these peace talks. Uh, but you're in London looking at the role of oligarchs there. Is there a, a real sense that the UK, who once welcomed them, are, are turning against them? Yeah, really clear. Um, Stamford Bridge, effectively the jewel and the crown of the Russian oligarchs. Roman Abramovich, of course, uh, soon to be no longer the owner of Chelsea Football Club. The ownership there uh, is up in the air. But uh, the, Ru the Russian oligarchs effectively now are seeing their assets frozen by the UK government. Today, uh, a 45 million euro super yacht impounded, the first of its kind to be impounded uh, in Great Britain. Uh, it had a, a wine cellar, a unique wine cellar, as well as a fresh water pool, the manufacturer tell us some footage there uh, of the yacht but uh, this uh, is likely to be followed with more asset seizures the oligarchs themselves starting to complain about life under sanctions Mikhail Friedman uh, worth some 10 billion euros today saying that the UK government should put forward some sort of allowance for the oligarchs who have their assets frozen saying that he can't go to a restaurant and uh, buy food with a credit card so uh, really a hard life for some but Bill Browder is one uh, businessman in London uh, who spent time in Russia who isn't close to Vladimir Putin in fact he was described as um, Vladimir Putin's number one enemy for quite some time. He says that uh, as the UK, the EU and the US all pushed for sanctions against the oligarchs with alleged close ties to Putin, that Ireland should look really at how its financial services are being used uh, by Russian oligarchs and dark money. Um, they, they, use, <clears throat> they use any country that has a rule of law 
property rights in a decent financial system. And if uh, Ireland has those three things, which I believe it does, then Ireland will be one of the places where Russians hold their dirty money. It's beyond me how, how everybody bought in. <clears throat> Everyone said, look, you know, they're doing business with, this, with these bad guys. He, this one is doing business, that one's doing business, this one's doing business. It must be normal to do business and everyone just did business. And then, you know, the government, I go to the government to try to be tough on Russia and they're saying, well, everyone's doing business. Why would we want to uh, mess that up? And, and so, I mean, you know, I don't think we need to be spending a lot of time looking backwards. I think we should be looking forwards. And, and the question is, um, have we reached a point where we're not going to go back to that? And I hope that these images on television where everybody can see with their own eyes Vladimir Putin killing women and children that will never go back to that psychology again of appeasement. We're going to leave it there, but thank you for that, uh, Richard Chambers in London for us this evening. Well, there's lots to talk about with our panel. I'm joined tonight by Minister of State for Special Education, Josefa Madigan, Hugh O'Connell, political correspondent of the Irish Independent and the Sunday Independent, Sinn Féin TD, Danach O'Leary, and News Talk presenter, Kira Kelly. You are all very welcome uh, to the programme. Uh, Hugh, I want to start with you because we've seen, I suppose, uh, the Russian embassy here being a real focal point for uh, protests over what's been happening in Ukraine. So that's what's happening in front of the gates. What's actually going on behind those gates? What does this expulsion tell us? Well, officially what the government has said is that the, that the four diplomats are being expelled because it's not in accordance with the international standards of diplomatic behaviour. Now, that's generally viewed as code for, for spying, espionage of some sorts. Now, through the reporting of others, uh, uh, John Mooney in the Sunday Times, for example, and I think Conor, Conor Gallagher and Conor Lally in the, um, in the Irish Times, uh, have been reporting on the activities at the, at the Russian embassy. Uh, and generally, it, it, the Russian embassy in Dublin is seen as somewhat of a hub for uh, training agents, uh, logis uh, logistics for kind of espionage across the continent of Europe. And Ireland obviously doesn't have the same capacity as the intelligence services in other countries to uh, keep an eye on these, uh, of what's going on there on Orwell Road. So we're um, seeing as a bit of a soft touch, is that I it? think so, yeah. And I mean, th th that's something that came, in, came into play as well when, when we had these military exercises off the, um, off the southwest coast of the country um, uh, earlier this year. This was seen as something that Russia did because they could do it. And we couldn't really monitor that in the same way that other uh, defence and intelligence uh, uh, systems in other countries can do. Um, but we should say, of course, that the Russian embassy denies all, all this. And, of course, the, the Russian embassy in Dublin put out a statement today denying the basis on which these four diplomats were expelled. Uh, the Russian embassy also said, uh, Josefa Madigan, that this wouldn't go unanswered. What are you taking that they mean by that? Well, I think we could, we could all speculate on what that may be. Um, it's been reported that they may, uh, in turn, you know, expel some of the officials in the embassy uh, in Russia, uh, but it remains to be seen. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't agree that Ireland is taking a soft touch um, to the issue uh, around Ukraine. We've expelled four um, people today, uh, four uh, officials in the embassy, um, and I think that's a very strong signal of solidarity with Ukraine. Um, they obviously weren't behaving um, in, 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 in alliance with the diplomatic uh, behaviour um, under Article 9 of the 1961 but Vienna Convention. And Was the embassy I, under the I spotlight before now, though? 
I have no doubt that there's a huge body of work that's been done. Um, I, I think it, it can be a difficult and tricky issue to discuss in, in public. Uh, I would imagine there are very few in government who know the finer details of that security advice. Um, and obviously there is a war going on at the moment. Um, we need to make sure that we protect Ireland uh, and the safety of its people and citizens. That's of paramount importance. Um, so I'm not going to speculate uh, as, as to what Russia may or may not do. I'm just satisfied now that this action has been taken. Um, if further action needs to be taken in terms of other Russians uh, living in Ireland, I've no doubt that that will be done also. Including the ambassador? Uh, I think the ambassador is, remains at present and that's to keep diplomatic channels open. Uh, as you know, there are, are, are children being born to surrogate mothers in the Ukraine. Uh, there could be Irish citizens in difficulty uh, in Russia at various stages. So I think it's important that that communication is left open at present. Uh, do you agree with that, uh, Donegal Leary, that that diplomatic channel remains open and must be protected at all costs? Well, like, I mean, I don't think that all, all rests on the ambassador and obviously if that came to it, there would be a charge d'affaires here and in Moscow. I do want to welcome what has happened today. It's something, it is the kind of de diplomatic escalation that we have been looking for. I think it is important. Um, I think it's overdue. Uh, the other thing I would say is I think the point that Bill Browder made there is very important. Uh, what has taken Putin by surprise is the relatively unified approach of Western leaders in terms of sanctions. But Ireland can do more and should be doing more in terms of the IFSC uh, and the Russian money that has been going through there. And that's something that Sinn Féin TD Marit Farrell has been raising for about two years now and there's been no action on it. Now the spotlight has come onto it. I think it is time to take concrete action to ensure that that isn't the case. Have we been lax, do you think, here, Kelly, when it comes to sort of the presence of Russian money here in Ireland? Yeah, I suspect we have, but I think that we wouldn't be alone in that. And when you were asking about ambassadors, none of the countries in the EU have expelled a Russian ambassador as yet. We're in a difficult position, aren't we, in that we don't want to completely cut ties with Russia because we do have Irish citizens there and we may need to reach out and protect those and those diplomatic channels. I mean, even, in fairness, even the Ukrainians are talking to the Russians, but... Um, I'm not surprised that this has happened today and I think it's probably a very good move on our part. Uh, Hugh, do you think this does signal sort of a deterioration between, you know, Russian Irish links? Oh, yeah, I mean, I mean they've been deteriorating for, for several weeks now, uh, not least uh, with the, the Russian ambassador. I mean, he, he went on the 6-1 News on RT and, and got a roasting from, from David McCullough. And I think, you know, there's been widespread political condemnation of what he told the Oireachtas Foreign Affairs Committee earlier in the year and what has actually transpired now in terms of Russia invading Ukraine. So, um, you know, as I said, the, the embassy put out a statement this evening disagreeing with the basis on which these diplomats were expelled. So, and saying there's going to be consequences. Relations are, yes, exactly. And relations are, are deteriorating every day, I dare say. Um, but nonetheless, you know, he, he is, uh, as Kira points out, no other European country has expelled an ambassador at this stage. And that's not something I think that's on the agenda at this point in time, notwithstanding the fact that Sinn Féin are calling for it. Backbenchers in, in the Minister's Party are calling for it. All the backbenchers. Labour are calling for it today. Ivan Batra called for it. Uh, but there doesn't seem to be a, a view within government that it's the right thing to do at this stage. No. Okay, uh, for the reasons that we outlined, you know, and I think it's important to state as well that even though there wasn't unanimity between the 27 member states in terms of, of, of expelling uh, certain officials um, uh, and diplomats from uh, the embassy, uh, the Czech Republic have done it, the Netherlands have done it and Belgium have done it. So Ireland isn't alone mm. uh, in terms of that. And we have to stand up uh, to this issue uh, in terms of Russia. Okay, I just want to move on to um, the new pension scheme that was announced today, this auto-enrolment um, that's going to come into force in 2024. Um, Sinn Féin seemed to be broadly in support of it. Yeah, well, look, I mean, there is some of the detail of this now that we need to get into. And 
I suppose we've been looking for auto enrolment. We're unusual uh, across European countries in not having auto enrolment. It is an important part of shoring up our pension system. We would have preferred that the NTMA would take a leading role. We're a bit concerned of the role of private pensions uh, in leading on on some of the investments that are going to be made here. In what way are you concerned? Well, look, I mean, if you look back to the to the crash uh, and what happened, some of the private pensions around that time, a lot of people were were left in a very precarious position because of that. Uh, we would prefer, and it has been our position that the NTMA, they have a lot of experience in managing funds, that they would be to the fore in relation to this. That's our view. Broadly, the Was idea... Was there any reason, just if they weren't chosen to manage yeah, this? I mean, I, I think there has been an exhaustive body of work done in relation to this. Um, and as Heather Humphrey said today, we've been talking about this for 25 years. 87% uh, of the Citizens' Assembly in 2017 wanted an auto-enrolment pension system. Uh, it's in our programme for government. Um, and, you know, it, it's going to help 750,000 people. Um, so there's obviously a, a good reason uh, why it's been done in this way. I mean, 35%... Uh, is is it the answer? Because we've been hearing for years and years and years, pensions is a ticking time bomb, pensions is a ticking a time bomb, thing. and I no mean, government I, I, has been able I to mean, tackle it. Is this, is this the solution? I, I really believe that. I mean, I, I, I mean I'm actually glad for my children um, and, and, and younger generations, uh, and indeed uh, people that are working now, aged between 23 and 60, will have access to a pension. I mean, if you take an average person who's earning 35,000 per annum, um, they will have a, a pension pot of over 290,000 um, uh, over over their lifetime and there are many people that we all know at uh, you know at almost retirement age who have absolutely no pension so this this will ensure that they get that. Akir, do you have any concern for for businesses here who are suddenly going to have to you know stump up to provide for employees pensions when perhaps they never have been able to do it before or never felt that they could afford it before? I thought it was quite interesting Isma came out today and they were in support of it mm. even though that they know it's going to cost them a certain amount of money. Um, I think you named it yourself there, Kira, the ticking time bomb. We know that we haven't been planning adequately for our old age and for our, our, our younger generation's old age. This has to happen. I, I would suggest probably it has to happen that the retirement age has to change as well. Because we simply, we simply can't, no matter what anyone tells us, we can't go from having maybe five or six or even if it's just under five workers paying for somebody's pension now down to two and maintain standards of living for people. That's actually an impossibility. And so we need to start preparing. And young people in this country are sort of being let down by the lack of this scheme up until now, I, I think, insofar as that we know that maybe their, their parents or their grandparents' generations are going to have much more secure, much more kind of gold-linked pensions than they could ever dream of. And they're also, of course, generation rent. So they may not end up with that home asset that, that other generations have had as well. So they could end up renting an old age with no money. Something, um, you ha something has to give. You mentioned there um, calls perhaps to... Uh, change the pension age. Now, I'm going to assume that you mean increase the oh, pension yeah. age. Hugh, is there a possibility here now that we're going to say, the opposition are going to say, look, the pensions are sorted. It's not going to cost what we thought it was going to cost. There's no need to increase the pension age to 67. Uh, well, I mean, Sinn Féin wants to bring it back to 65. 65, right? yeah. Um, yeah. You know, and there's, a, there's still no clear decision of government as to what they're going to do in that space, whether they are going to bring it up to 67 or not. We had the report of the, the Pensions Commission last year, made a number of recommendations about gradually uh, kicking it up to, to 67, uh, 68 and, and on. 
uh, to 69, yeah, I think. But my understanding is, is, is Heather Humphreys will be bringing a memo to government shortly uh, in relation to it, and we'll be looking at the, but, the pension but, you know, uh, commission we've had, report. I think, as, as Kira said, we've, we've had this issue for, for 25 years. Several ministers kicked it around. I remember speaking to Leo Bradker in 2017 when he was Social Protection Minister about this idea of... of um, this SSIA-style scheme, this, which is now what we know as auto-enrolment, and the government would contribute uh, money towards it. Um, so what, we're, what we've heard now today is it's going to start in 2024. Uh, we wait, we'll, wait, we'll wait and see oh, if it you, actually you, does. You sound, you, you sound, Hugh, that you're, you're, like you're sceptical. You're not convinced that it will be introduced in 2024? Well, it's introduced. You have to be sceptical about something that, that has been repeatedly announced by, over this by the government. And Every populist will start. Paul will come out saying no. And the reality of it is, is that you're, you're going to be looking at one for one, somebody paying somebody else's pension if we don't do something. It's, it's, yeah. it's I mean, ridiculous. It's well, ridiculous. So I'm going to get you in there because are you the populist that's going to be shouting and having a field day over look, this? Uh, like people can use whatever lab labels they want, right? There's two issues here that I just want to address. The first is the issue of mandatory retirement, right? We're talking about people working longer, but there's a lot of people who want to work longer that can't, right? And we've tried to raise this issue a number of times, and the progress from government has been absolutely glacial, right? There's a lot of people that want to. There's a lot of people who can work longer. I would like to keep working as long as I can. I envision myself working beyond 65, absolutely. But There's plenty there of people who be happy to get out and of that and age no, too. This is important. It is very easy for us here uh, in this studio or for people who are working jobs that don't require heavy manual labour to talk about increasing the retirement age. I cannot be convinced that it is justifiable to ask a floor layer, a mason, a home help. I'm, I'm making a point in principle. I'm making a point in principle that I cannot be convinced that it's justifiable to force those people to work until they're 67, having spent four or five decades lifting okay. blocks, uh, lifting yeah, patients, yeah, all yeah, that I, kind of work. It want, is not sustainable. I didn't want to talk over Dunica, but you know, there is no decision made as yet. I, I just said a moment ago that uh, Heather will be bringing, uh, or Heather Humphreys will be bringing uh, a memo to government yeah. around this. Um, Do we know when that will be? Well, it's supposed to be the end of March. She, she, yeah. she said, yeah, she said over the next uh, month or so. It's the 29th uh, uh, of March. You know, so, Hopefully it'll happen soon, but there hasn't been any decision made about this. But I think to go back to Kira's point, um, okay. you know, we have four and a half uh, people now working, supporting uh, pensioners. In by 2050, we'll only have two people uh, supporting. But you say we're going to have clarity pension. from government very so soon. What the pension is going to be? But this is a really good uh, uh, announcement good today day. around the auto enrolment, and it's going to help so many uh, Irish people. All right, uh, our panel are going to be back after the break when we take a look at the changes announced to the leaving. Service. Do stay with us. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. 
So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You're very welcome back. Well, there's been a big shakeup of the Leaving Cert examination. Changes include less emphasis on a final written exam, as well as more teacher-based assessments. Two new subjects will also be offered. Claire Brock sat down with Minister for Education Norma Foley and began by asking her about that announcement. There are three key objectives as far as I was concerned today. One was to empower students to, to meet the challenges of the 21st century. Second, to enrich their learning and their skills, and that's a very important factor. And finally, to um, embed well-being into education so that the stress and anxiety that students, I suppose, experience, particularly in having a terminal exam one day in June, um, just to, to seek to um, offload that element of stress. Critically, 40% of this will be teacher-based assessment. Are they on board? Well, I think in the first instance, we have to acknowledge that um, our teachers and our school staff showed extraordinary resilience and agility throughout COVID. And at the end of the day, teachers have one objective, and that's to serve their students and to ensure that students um, have the maximum opportunity to showcase their talents and abilities. Um, I have worked in the classroom for a long, long time myself, and I know that that was and continues to be my greatest motivation, that students get the opportunities to succeed. We saw throughout COVID where teachers um, came on board in terms of uh, providing for accredited grades or calculated grades, depending on the time frame. And I think teachers will show the same agility and the same determination to, to acknowledge that we cannot stand still in education, that if we want the best for our students, if we want them to be at the cutting edge, if we want them to be able to compete, then we need for them to have other opportunities other than a single exam at the end of, uh, you know, sometime in June, where it's a written exam. So do you foresee it being different to when junior cycle reform came about? The teachers weren't happy about it. It led to delays and to industrial action. How do we know it will be different this time? Well, again, I, I suppose there's always great learnings from how things were done previously. Um, I want to acknowledge that at this point, junior cycle is very well embedded and there's very positive reports in terms of how our students um, are performing and uh, how they're adapting to junior cycle. But notwithstanding that, I think the greatest lesson of learning was that teachers and those in education need to be part of the process in terms of um, formulating um, the subject areas and formulating the, the, the um, assessment. And so uh, going forward, there will be work with the NCCA the State Examinations Commission and the partners to, to work out the detail of, of I, I suppose, how this will be presented. But we have very concrete timelines in place. Now, as you know, COVID cases have blown up and the Leaving Cert is just nine weeks away. How much is COVID currently impacting on this class that are going to sit the Leaving Cert in a matter of weeks? Well, in the first instance, I, I, I think we're very clear in our schools. We have maintained our infection prevention and control measures um, the question of masks, if students or staff wish to wear masks, they're provided for in the school, hand sanitizers provided in the school, enhanced cleaning provided in the school. Um, in fact, 51 million for this third term alone has been made available to schools for all of those measures. But we do know that masks aren't being worn in schools now. But, but what I'm saying is that the choice is there. You know, and we are uh, making the resources available should people choose to do that. Do you think there should be stronger guidance considering the surge we're currently seeing? 
Well, I think, and I'd have to be very fair and honest about this, uh, throughout our time and my time as uh, Minister, throughout the pandemic, all of us within the Department of Education and within the education sector have very significantly followed the public health advice. Uh, when they advised that masks should be in place, we did that. When they advised on particular infection prevention control measures, we, we've done that. So we continue to follow public health advice. Public health at the minute are not advocating um, um, the, the return to, to masks on a compulsory basis. Um, if that changes, we change with it. So we are following the public health advice. With a second set of exams running in July, colleges are worried about a delayed start uh, to the college year. Can you guarantee that won't happen? Well, I, I, again, I think to be fair, that, that is the jurisdiction of the State Examinations Commission. They are currently working on that. We will have a better feel for how many students are availing of the second opportunity for the exam at that time. But obviously, we will be working as close as we possibly can to timelines. But you know, there is nothing predictable about the world of COVID. We know that now. Um, but so therefore, we need to make the provisions that we need to make to give our students the maximum opportunities to take exams and to have pathways forward. That's what we're doing here in the Department of Education. And I have every confidence that uh, further and higher level will do likewise. Well, that was Minister for Education, Norma Foley, speaking to Claire Brock a little earlier today. Josefa Madigan, Hugh O'Connell, Donica O'Leary and Kira Kelly are still with me. A huge start with you. Uh, the Minister said their teachers have shown great agility and great determination. But the question is, are they on board? Now, I listened to the TUI and the ASTI today and they seem to be fundamentally opposed to this idea of marking students. Yeah, I mean, this is going to be the big challenge, I think, to get these reforms over the line. Um, you know, some, some within the, the education sphere believe that teachers' unions historically have been the biggest uh, block and impediment to reform, and that eventually they will embrace it, but not without some uh, you know, negotiation along the way. So I think that's going to be the big challenge for the government. I suppose there's also a question about whether this is the sort of fundamental reform perhaps that we would have envisaged in a kind of a post-COVID environment. I mean, this is the result, the result of a review that began before COVID. Um, and there are changes, there's no doubt about that. And I'm sure the, the minister can speak to them. But I mean... Yeah, it's, a know, pretty, it's pretty ambitious reform, it in fairness. It is a pretty ambitious reform. But I mean, some people would argue, like, what, what is the... The, the merit in, the, in prolonging the agony of some Leaving Cert students in the sense that they have to sit an exam at the end of fifth year as well. And also, I suppose, from a practical point of view, it occurred to me this evening that if you, uh, do, if you can do your Irish and your English uh, first paper in fifth year, what happens if you want to drop down to pass? Or what happens if you're, if you're mulling whether to, to move up to honours or, or any... These kind of decisions, they all have to be made, it seems, earlier than normal. So, it, you know, it's going to be a challenge for students as well, I think. So it's perhaps not the reform that... Yeah, just see if that's a, that's a yeah. really, really obvious question. I mean, I, I Does the department have the answer to that? Well, I mean, this is... These reforms, um, I mean, are about embedding well-being and reducing stress. Uh, Richard Bruton um, was obviously very passionate about senior cycle reform. It's really good to see that the NCCA has now published their report. Uh, this but is that a, really this is a practical vision. point there that you made? Somebody does an exam in, in uh, fifth year and they dropped it to pass in, in sixth year. What happens? Yeah, well, obviously, these are things that have to be worked out. I mean, this is a vision that has just been set out today. Um, obviously, um, there will be a, a, a policy programme delivery board that will be driving this forward. Uh, I, I note uh, the Minister for Education has to appoint a chair in relation to that and, and put the meat on the bones as such. But I, I do think it's a really positive thing overall. Um, uh, certainly in Fine Gael, we're, we're very supportive of it. Um, and I think that the continuous assessment will suit a lot of children where just having 100% mm. on exams doesn't. So the 40% continuous assessment will, will be of great uh, I just want to put a tweet, uh, Donica, that actually came in, I think, for the Minister this evening. Your plan is nonsense and clearly came with minimal consultation with teachers on the ground or with anyone who actually deals 
with students. So it's a very wide consultation in relation to this. Just, just, just sorry to interject. There was there, consultation. You're saying, huge, uh, wide consultation. but there seems to be resistance from teachers. Um, does Sinn Féin support the idea of teachers having to grade their students? Well, first, just like, I mean, I think it's important to say, like, I mean, we've long been of the view that the Leaving Cert isn't fit for purpose. It doesn't measure the skills that are needed in the 21st century, yeah. and it provides a disproportionate amount of stress and anxiety. And we're glad to see a move away from the one big exam approach and towards continuous assessment. That's the kind of thing that we would have argued for for a long time. I think it is important that we preserve the relationship between the student and the teacher. Uh, I think it is an important part of the education system. And do you think that can be preserved if teachers have to grade their students? Well, I, th I think it could be preserved, but I think it's also the case that there are very few forms of continuous assessment that can't also be marked externally. Uh, and state exams, uh, as you know, the State Exams Commission will be doing the, extern the final Moderation, kind of yeah, but yeah, moderation, so, so, which is a different thing from yeah, marking. And the, but there are very few, there are very few forms of continuous assessment that could not be done. Uh, I think in a more transparent way with external marking. But the other key thing here is is the resources that are needed because some of the subjects that we're going to need continuous assessment. For example, if we want to do some kind of practical element in chemistry, are chemistry labs up to it? If we want to ensure that everyone has the opportunity to do PE, a lot of schools still don't have halls. A lot of woodworking but rooms are still not fit for. Really you know, no, I'm just making. The point and look, I'm not even necessarily mm. making a point of criticism, yeah. but resources are going to have to follow here. Uh, yeah, and the unions did students. point out today yeah, that there's a retention and, and, and recruitment issue with student or with teachers yeah, at the moment. There's a, there's a 4.3 billion you know school building program, you know, that um, I do, Minister. Yeah, and it yeah, doesn't generally include school halls, there has to be a substantial renovation yeah. or a new build. So, if we're going to ensure that PE is available to every student, schools need to be able to apply yeah, for halls. So, these, these are the kind of things that there's schemes available for that. Kira, we heard today from the union saying, Look, we have to have trust, that's the big thing. We have to maintain trust in the leave insert. For all of its flaws, I think people generally trusted um, the system. Mm -hmm. Do you trust this? I'm not sure that I do. Um, I will have, my son will be in fifth year the year after this, so he'll be the first cohort that are going to be, I suppose, affected by these changes. Um, I think it's lovely that they're going to have drama and theatre and film and all that. That's very nice. Well-being, great. I don't really mind the, the exam in fifth year as well as sixth year. It might lighten the load in some way. I think the big bugbear is exactly what the teachers are saying about them assessing. And I might view it slightly different to how they are viewing it. We've had grade inflation out the door for the last two years and it has created a system where our universities are now looking with scepticism about our Leaving Cert results and saying they may have to have a matriculation exam to actually assess people because the Leaving Cert may not be fit for purpose. We have had a glut of kids doing incredibly well, which is wonderful. But what it actually means is, is that there's a load of kids at the top who maybe wouldn't have been at the top based on an exam and therefore those who would are now competing in a way they didn't have to. And I suppose lastly, if you want a fair system, there's, I, I know that people are feeding in from, from different streams, you know, middle class kids getting grinds and all of that kind of stuff. That, that does affect mm. their ability to perform in an exam, no question. But what also affects those things is, is if you have mummy and daddy as two professors and you're getting continuous assessment and somebody else is doing like there's no way standardisation can be applied to continuous assessment in the same way it can to an examination. And I'm not sure that we won't see again maybe kids from certain backgrounds who are already disadvantaged, further disadvantaged and by not this. being supported. Yeah. Okay, I just want to move on because um, we asked the Minister there about COVID and COVID numbers in school and, and obviously the calls you to reintroduce masks, to make uh, masks mandatory are getting louder and louder, but the government is steadfast. It's not for turning. 
No, I mean, and the public health advice is, is very clear that there isn't a rationale, as, they, as, as the CMO sees it, for the reintroduction of masks, uh, or the, man, the reintroduction of the mandate uh, that masks must be worn on public transport and retail and so on and so forth. So, at the moment, the government seems happy to let the uh, situation continue as is, notwithstanding the pressure that is uh, kind of coming onto the hospital system. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a big call. It's, it's no doubt about it. It is a big call, particularly when the health service is kind of saying, well, we kind of need something for help. Um, I just want to go to Anthony Staines who I spoke to a little earlier. He's a professor of health systems at DCU and I asked him about the latest surge and the government's response. Well, despite an extraordinary rise in numbers and repeated pleas in the health service that the government should take some action to try and bring numbers down, there seems to be no plan to take any action, however mild. There's no plan to encourage people to wear masks. There's no plan to bring in air filtration, say, in schools or the hospitality industry. There's no encouragement to people to socialise outdoors. There's no encouragement for people to keep using ventilation. And the government's plan seems to be to wait for this, the case numbers to rise, and then eventually they will fall, um, at which point they will presumably review the situation and see where we are. But we will have had weeks of severe pressure in hospitals. And we'll have a large number of people who have been infected, perhaps some of them several times, and who are at significant risk of longer term problems. So for you, a minor action would be what? Wearing masks again, making that mandated? Something like pushing people very strongly to wear masks. Um, I was flying in Italy last week and every soul in the airport in Bergamo was wearing a mask. Only about half those, even in security, in Dublin airport were wearing masks. Now, there were signs saying you were supposed to wear a mask, but there was no real encouragement to do so. And we've heard that time and time again, look, you've just been told it's your own personal responsibility. We're giving people the choice. Is the government's attitude here, though, look, it's too late. Let's just let this thing rip through, because that's no, what it looks I mean, like. The, the public health advice hasn't changed at all. We're encouraging people uh, to wear masks in crowded indoor settings and in healthcare. Um, it's just not mandated since February the 28th. Um, and I have to say, I've seen myself over the last number of weeks, people are beginning to wear their masks. They had taken a little break, I think, for a period of time. Um, but and also, not to the, degree, to but, the but, same but, degree it was but, before. But just to uh, say, it's, it's the vaccinations really that, that are the critical thing. 60% of the people in hospital haven't had their booster. It's really important that they do. There's also, it protects them against serious risk of illness and of death. And Dr. Colm Henry, so that's where the focus is. I heard him earlier on, he was saying that like in January 2021, we had 1,500 uh, people who died. We had 170 last February. Now, each of each death is obviously um, of huge significance and shouldn't happen in the first instance. But I think we have to remember, um, you know, where we're at uh, in terms of trying to get people to wear their masks and to follow the public health advice. Kira, it's also down to transmissibility. We have never really seen a virus like this before, other than maybe measles, which is probably the most contagious virus that we've ever seen as, as humankind. This is the same. It's 10 times more transmissible than the first wave of COVID. It's too late to put on the mask. I'm not saying it's too late. I'm saying it's slightly ineffective. Social distancing and masks won't stop this variant. And that's why the public health advice is what it is, because they know that they're not going to really impact on it in the way we would want. We, we are where we are, and thank goodness it's not as severe. Okay, Hopefully my thanks. It Hopefully. Will. Uh, my thanks to Josefa Madigan and to Donica O'Leary. Uh, Kira and Hugh will be staying with me. And after the break, I'll be asking, is Ripoff Republic back?
we've heard a lot about price rises and the cost of living recently, but a viral tweet over the price of a scone, scone has many wondering if the rip-off Republic is back. Well, Hugh O'Connell and Kira Kelly are still with me, and I'm joined on Skype by Owen Corrie, editor of Air and Travel magazine. Uh, you're very welcome to the programme, Owen. Um, I think we have the uh, tweet that went viral. It was a receipt um, where somebody went to a hotel, the Cashel Palace Hotel, I think it's in Tipperary, and they had scones and tea uh, for three people, and it was 45 euro and uh, the tweet really did go uh, viral. Uh, Kira, do you think it's too much money? Are you yes. partial to a posh scone? I call them scones so clearly I'm not remotely posh. Um, yeah I think that's far too much money and it was serviced as well so it was actually 49.50 by the time they paid the bill. Now I know because I, I, I took the trouble to, to look it up the hotel said they didn't just get it's a portion of scones so instead of getting one you get three but they're small um, so the the party actually got a basket of nine scones which is a lot of, not a lot of scones probably more than they would have wanted if anyone had explained that there was three in each portion but still in all like 50 quid for a tea and scones that to me is kind of a jaw-dropping amount of money but I do accept that it is a five-star hotel and very plush and maybe if you go there you're going to be paying over the odds and it is a choice you don't have to go there um, I just want to go to you, uh, Owen, because the Consumer Association of Ireland today said charging these prices is outrageous. It has a serious impact on the economy. Word gets out that that's what you have to pay in Ireland and it um, you know, uh, puts people off coming here. They say the, the answer in this industry seems to always be charge as much as you can get. What do you say to that? Yeah, welcome to the hospitality industry. Um, it, it, what happens when uh, every country is that uh, five-star product comes with a premium price. Now, the big question is, is it too much? Is it very bad value for what you got? I think that the consumer will answer that. We do have a small number of five-star hotels. There are about 36 of them on the island. Uh, the prices can be quite high in them. We tend to complain a lot, but this sort of thing happens when we travel abroad. I once, uh, my host, not thankfully not me, once paid 60 euro for a club sandwich in a hotel in Paris. Um, as Kira says, uh, five-star prices will compare with lower prices in other establishments. And you've got to remember that if we are going to play at a high level in international tourism, we've got to be offering a five-star product and possibly um, producing the quality that uh, these prices are normally charged or normally paid for in other countries. So are you saying, Owen, uh, for people to really believe it is a five-star quality, you have to charge high prices? No, actually, the price doesn't decide the quality. Uh, the product decides the quality and the level of service is what uh, supplies the quality. I'm speaking to you from the Irish Hotels Federation um, uh, conference, annual conference here in Cavan. And a big discussion point all day is if the price points, are, pr price points for our, our high-end hotels are riding a little bit higher than the competition because that's what will decide in the end. Um, there is a convergence of a opinion on on that and it is a very um it's a it's a time of turmoil for the hotel industry and you can see that uh, a lot of uh, what's going on internationally is that hoteliers are dealing with the sort of price rises that all of us are facing at the petrol pumps and in our heating bills and things like that and trying to reprice to reflect those prices we see it going on all over europe 
Okay, uh, Hugh, we did actually ask the Cashel uh, Palace Hotel for a statement. They didn't um, get back to us. But look, it is a fabulous establishment. They spent millions uh, renovating it. These prices are comparable to other four or five star hotels around the world. Do you think it's, it's rip off Ireland or is it just in keeping with what everybody else is doing? Well, I mean, I think it's you know, consumers have a choice, I guess, and they can choose to go here or they can choose to go and get a scone and a cup of coffee for a lot cheaper somewhere else. I mean, I guess, you know, I'd be interested to know whether their price has gone up in light of the cost of living going up and inflation and all that. But, I mean, you know, I think it's it's not great. It's it's not a good price to be charging for tea and scones, but perhaps people should... But you're paying, I suppose, for the for the ambience and, yeah, well, and, the, and the luxury the of the like setting. There, the luxury, the, the what that's like down walk, there. I've never been, so I, I can't... Yeah, I'm not really in a position to, to comment None of us on, have on been. Nobody's had a five-star no, score. I, mean, I, I would say it's probably good publicity for them. Perhaps. But know. do we have a reputation, do you think, for offering value when it comes to hospitality in Ireland? I think we do, yeah. I mean, I think there's, there, there, is, there, there is good value to be got out there. But equally, I think that a lot of people's experience over the last two years, particularly when we've had... Uh, we've been encouraged to staycate is that it can be extremely expensive to holiday here mm. in Ireland. I mean, my own experience last summer, it, you know, even though we, we got a nice deal where we were and, we, you know, we, we, we were lucky in that sense, it still cost us an awful lot of money to go away. Uh, about the more, same as it, more to, to stay here than to go abroad? Well, I mean, I'd say it would be about the same. But, you know, but if you go abroad, you have to factor in a flight and all of that kind of travel expense as well. So you're not expe you expect when you do a staycation, you, you're going to save money and that it, it, you're staying at home because you can't afford to go abroad. Whereas, in fact, usually it's either the same price or in, in some experiences it could be, it could be but is more that, expensive. Is that the problem, though, Keir, that it's because we're here, we're in Ireland, we just don't expect the prices that they charge everywhere else? Yeah, in the world. I mean, I, I have four kids, so if I holiday as a family, it's expensive wherever I go, but it's way more expensive here, say, to eat out. And um, that's often a deciding factor with not staying home. Now, obviously, during the pandemic, there was no choice about staycations. But I know in other years, I've kind of gone warm weather and cheap food and drink. It's kind of a no-brainer. And that is something I think Owen said there that, that people are, um, that you have to think what the competition are charging. And the competition is all, all of Europe. And uh, I'm not sure that we are as good value. I know we're good quality at a lot of places, but I'm not sure about the value. You need to work on your value. All right, we have to leave it there, but that's it from us. Good night. Take care. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.